Let's pray. Father, as we come today, some of us feel like we must have worn you out with our prayers. We must have asked for too many things. Our neediness makes us feel like we must be the only who cry out constantly for help. I pray that today you would remind us from your word that that is the normal attitude of a believer. That those who walk with you don't ask for help less. We ask, they ask for help more. Those who see our own poverty ask for the king of all the earth to help us. And so today I pray that you would remind us that, the, that today those of us who find ourselves needy find ourselves in good company and welcome. I pray, God, that you would remind us today that those that are afraid of the future, afraid of the C word, afraid of the doctor's visits, afraid of whatever the future holds, God, I pray that you would remind us today that help is one of the normal prayers of a believer. That you do not push us away because of that. Instead, you invite us close and you say, call to me, I will hear you. God, I pray for those here today that call out for help in whatever temptations they face, whatever temptations seem to be choking the life out of their spiritual life, cutting them off from you. God, I pray that today they would know that they are welcome to come to you and ask for forgiveness and grace and mercy. God, I pray today that those who walk in shame and secrets, that they would know that they can come to the God of the universe who knows everything and won't be surprised if they come and ask for forgiveness and grace and rescue. God, I pray that today as we um, gather, I pray for those in our church who are battling illness. Dave, who's in the hospital right now, dealing with treatment. Others this week who have had operations or are going to have a new operation this week. God, I pray that you would give them, that you would comfort them with your love, that you would remind them that you are the God who loves and delights in them and sings over them and plans to do good to them and not to harm them. God, I pray for those that are uncertain if they're going to make it to that doctor's visit that's scheduled, unsure what's going to happen. God, I pray that you would remind them that nothing will surprise you and nothing will slow down your plans in their life. God, I pray for those that this week look at the bills and look at the coming year and don't know how it's going to work. God, I pray that you would remind them today that just as you clothe the flowers of the field, you promise to clothe us. Just as you feed the birds of the air, you promise to feed your people. And you've never changed that promise. So God, I pray that those of us today that worry about money, that you would say, let me worry about money to our hearts. God, I pray for those of us that battle unbelief and doubt, I pray that you would today, that you would, Speak to our hearts from the truth of your word and help us to believe it. God, I pray uh, today for uh, the kids in our church, the teachers in our church, the teachers' aides and the, the school staff in our church who have their own battles, their own worries, the little hearts of the kids in our church. Some of them are big hearts, God. But they have their own temptations and their own fears. They have their own giants in their lives. I pray that today, 
that you would show them that you are a God of rescue that cares for children and says, come to me. God, I pray today for the churches in Bluffs in our county. I pray, God, that today they would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and worshipped and loved. I pray that their focus, their, the desire of their hearts would be to know and love God and to love their neighbors as themselves. It can be so tempting in the life of a church to be focused on so many other things, and some of them are good things, but I pray that they would, those, the churches in Bluffs would be focused on the best thing and that through them, the seed of the gospel would be planted in the hearts and lives of children and families and adults all through that area. God, we know that you love them because you gave your only son to die for them. And so I pray that the people who are there would know it, would hear the truth of it and feel it in their hearts and repent and believe the gospel. And God, I pray for our church today that you would, in the same way, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's so easy for us to love other things with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray that you would help us to love you, that we would be a a people with one God, with one love in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the source of power for Christian homes? Whether you have young children, no children, single, widowed, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, what is the source of power that makes a Christian home possible? The Bible is pretty clear about some of the realities of Christian relationships. How Christians are supposed to relate to each other. How parents, husband and wife relate to each other. How parents and children relate to one another. How adult parents and adult children relate to one another. I guess it's always adult parents. But what I'm asking you today... (laughs) Thank you, Wes. Okay, you got... uh, But what is the power for a Christian home? I think a lot of the time... We know what to do, but we get hung up when it comes to, like, how can I do that? So, like, often we read the Bible and we go, okay, yes, I know what the law of God is, but I'm me, I'm this guy with these temptations and these sins and these weaknesses. Maybe we just say, hey, I just, I'm human. But as we think about our homes and our relationships in our homes with adult brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, cousins, as we think about the relationships in our families, what is it that empowers us to live as Christians in our homes and not just as regular people? Today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God answers that question for Israel. We're in this series called Hope. We're looking to see what does the whole Bible have to say to our homes and to our relationships and to our families. Last week we saw in Genesis 1 how God orients family in a different direction. But in Deuteronomy 6, we're going to see how God shows us the power to live in our homes uh, uh, the way God has called us to. Go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy means second law. 
we're a little bit familiar with, maybe you're familiar with the story of Israel, that, that Moses led the people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and God gave the people the law. And then they, when they reached the promised land, they rebelled against God, and so they wandered for 40 years. And at the end of 40 years of wandering, before Israel's about to go into the land of the promise, and before Moses dies, then God restates the law one more time in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You may not know this, but Deuteronomy is actually the second most quoted book of Jesus. Psalms and then Deuteronomy. Jesus loved Deuteronomy. And today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 to see what God has to say, where the power for living in our homes as a Christian comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, I pray that you would help us to find the source of the true power to obey you and to love you and to live in our families the way that you have called us to. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to specifically apply this to our homes. You can apply this to any part of your life, but specifically, we're going to be talking about what it looks, what lo- looks like to apply this to our relationships in our families. Here, Deuteronomy 6 calls to you and I to live in our homes from our relationship with God. God calls us to live in our homes and in our families with our brothers and sisters, with our parents, with our grandkids and our great-grandkids from our relationship with God. I want to show you three ways to obey God in our families from this passage. Three ways to live from our relationship with God in our families. First, this passage calls us to pay more attention to our own love for God. Look at verses 4 to 9. It calls us to pay more attention to our own love for God. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. And then in verses, verse 5, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, which talks about teaching this to our kids, comes after verse 5. Verse 5 says to parents and grandparents, to brothers and sisters, to children and teenagers, it calls all of us before anything else to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's so easy 
to skip those verses and go to verse 7 and be like, okay, as a parent, you're supposed to talk about the Bible at the table and you're supposed to talk about the Bible in the car and you're supposed to listen to Christian radio and do all these different things. And God is like, did you skip verse 5? Do you love me more than anything else? God says in verse 5. I th- Jesus did said this to Peter later, but I think God calls to his people here and says, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do, like Israel, I'm calling you to raise your children in the Lord, but Israel, do you love me? He gives them instructions and he, said, he talks about talking about that uh, when you lie down and when you get up. He says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Occasionally, you'll see in an old movie set in Israel, I think The Robe is one of those movies, where they, have, they like touch the door frame uh, and they, like put a little, they touch this little piece of paper. The people of Israel w- literally started doing this. They would, they would bind little boxes on their forehead with God's word put inside. They would put God's word in a little scroll rolled up in a little hole in their door frames. Thinking, okay, this is what it means to obey this passage. But what God is calling people to do is not simply roll up verses and touch them and offer lip service to them. But verse 5, he says, Israel, can you love the Lord your God with all your heart so that that empowers everything that happens in your home? So that as a parent, you can talk with integrity about what it means to love God and to obey God. I think God here in these verses first calls to us and says, do you love me? You see, it's so easy to skip down to verses 7 to 9 and get focused on the the tactics or the strategy of Christian parenting. The, The tactics and strategy of what it means to restore relationships with your brother or your sister, with your parents? What it, what it, what's the right strategy for having a Christian home? And yet we skip the heart of a Christian home. It can be so easy in marriage to get try focus on reading books or maybe listen to podcasts or you listen to the radio. You take a course that talks about the strategy of a Christian marriage. And yet if we skip verse 5 and we do not have the heart of it, then we've missed it. Paul David Tripp says often that marriages are fixed vertically before they're fixed horizontally. That it's our love for God that changes our marriage. The, the, the love for God between, uh, between a wife and God before a wife and a husband. Between a husband and God before the husband and his wife that fixes it. I think that applies to all of our relationships in our home. You and I's relationship with our brother is going to be fixed vertically before it gets fixed horizontally. You and I's relationship with our kids is going to be fixed vertically before it gets fixed horizontally. We can so be consumed with good marriages and fixed relationships. But God calls to us and says, do you love me? Is the power for your relationships in your home a white hot love for God? Or is it just taping on some strategies from the outside that look okay? A few years ago, I guess it would have been three or four years ago now, I, I wanted a new kind of plant that would be year-round interest by our front door. And I found one that was going to have red twigs in the winter when the snow would fall, but then it would you know, be a nice bush during the rest of the year. 
And so I found it, and I was like, okay, I'm going to transplant this. And so I, I make sure to dig out a big, huge root ball to move so it'll have the best chance that it has to start. So I dig out this plant and I take all of this different care and I put it in the right spot and I'm so excited to see what happens the next year. And I came out about an hour later and I found another stick in the ground. Oscar was about two at the time and he, uh, he was one or two and he had seen that I had planted a new plant. And so Oscar decided that he wanted to plant a plant in our front beds too. The problem was, all he saw was that dad had planted something with sticks above ground. And so Oscar had planted a dead stick with no roots and no chance of living. Because that's all he saw. Oscar's plant didn't survive and didn't last. And I'm telling you that story because I think often in our homes and in our relationships, like Oscar, we plant dead sticks hoping that they'll produce fruit and we miss the fruit or we miss the root of verse 5 that says do you love God with all your heart soul mind and strength maybe like me you have some relationships in your family that you pray that God will restore and you go oh I I, I don't know how to get over. I don't know how to cross this barrier. I don't know how to fix this thing. I, is there something I'm supposed to do? Maybe like me, you have a burden for your own kids and you, you want them to love you and love the Lord and you go, how do I do that? Or your grandkids, your great-grandkids. This passage says first, do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord more than anything else? And so... Like pay more, this, this passage starts by calling us to pay more attention to our own love for God than fixing the things that are around us. Do you love me? God says to us today. Second way, to live from our relationship with God in this passage. This passage calls us to live without forgetting God. Look at verses 10 to 19. When the Lord your God brings you into the land He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, Verse 13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. All of this hinges in this section on this, do not forget the Lord your God. No matter where life takes you, no matter how good things get, you will be tempted to forget God, God says. No matter, your, no matter your desire right now, oh, I could never do that. God says, just wait. Just wait. You're going 
Your heart is going to be tempted to forget me and to turn away from me and act as if I didn't do this for you and as if I am not the great love of your life. And so God calls to Israel here and says, live without forgetting me. So as we think about our families, God is calling to you and I and says, can you live in your home with your kids or your grandkids, with your, with your husband or your wife? Can you live with your brothers and sisters? Can you care for an aging parent without forgetting me? Because you're going to be tempted to try to do it on your own. You're going to be tempted to try to, to live in your home and in your family and on your own. That's the, big, that's the great problem with relationship advice in our culture. There's almost none of it says anything to do with the God who has promised and who provides and who cares and who dies for us. It's just strategies. But here he says, can you live your entire life with me as the, the, the primary goal, the primary mover in your life? You and I are tempted to forget God In the New Testament, specifically in 1 Timothy, the requirement for a pastor that's given is a one-woman man. Husband of one wife, some translations say, but the sense of it is that uh, a pastor should be a one-woman man that all of his heart and all of his affections and all of his vision is directed towards one woman. You don't want to have a pastor whose heart is divided in going different directions. You don't want a pastor whose eyes are going in different directions. And so God says, your pastor should be somebody who is a one-woman man. I was thinking of that verse this week because I think right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is calling for his people to be a a one-God people whose eyes are directed in one direction, who are only going to be satisfied in one direction. What God wants is a people who are like, we don't care the promise of something else. We don't care about some other gods. We don't care about possessions or success or power or control or comfort. Our hearts are going to head in one direction and we're not going to stop. I think in this passage, God says, in your life, in your homes, you're going to be tempted to turn in so many different directions to be satisfied or to try to be satisfied with so many other things, for your, to be satisfied in your marriage with something else, to be satisfied when your kids behave the way that you want them to or represent you to the world the way that you want them to, when your grandkids do the things in life that you want them to, and God says, no, let me be your God, not them, not an outcome. Point your heart in one direction and live without forgetting God. God calls us to, to live out of that. It is so easy in our homes, day by day and week by week, to set our hearts on our spouse speaking a certain way to us, behaving a certain way, doing things that we want them to do in the way that we want them to. It's so easy for us to be like, I'll talk to my sister again when she does so and so. And God says, no, there there will be no other God before me. Live as if I am the sole thing that could make you happy. Second way to live from a relationship with God is to live without forgetting God. And then the third way 
to live from our relationship with God is to get your story straight. Get your story straight. Look at verses 20 to 25. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all of these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. These verses call us to get our story straight in our homes. When your son asks you, why do we do these things? Why are we these kind of people? He doesn't say, so God will love us. He says, because God saved us. God saved us is the story. God did all of this in our lives. That is the dominant story in our homes, Moses says. The story of our lives is when we were in bondage, God saved us. And now He has called us out of everything He has provided and the good land He has brought us into. He has called us to walk with Him. He's called us to obey Him and live in this law. So easy in our homes, the story is obey so God will love you. Obey so you can go to heaven. Obey because Jesus is an example. And here He says, God saved us. That's why. Because when we were helpless and enslaved in Egypt, God brought us out. You say, what, what is right? What do you mean? At the end of the, the verses, verse 25, he says, that will be our righteousness. Well, the Bible's clear that nobody will be declared righteous in God's sight. But this is a, here is a statement in Deuteronomy where he says, this is what it's going to mean to live in relationship with God. Is that He has saved us And so now He has called us to live under this law, believing His promises and walking in His way. And so, in our homes, God's story must be the defining story in our homes. The defining story for your marriage is God saved me. When I was helpless, I needed a rescuer, and God stepped up. And so now He calls me as the husband to walk in that salvation and to be so dominated by it that I will go and chase after my wife when she doesn't deserve it to give myself in love for her. That's what it means by the power of the story to live in our homes. What does it mean for you to forgive a parent that's wronged you, that abandoned you and left you and never cared again? Getting our story straight becomes, when I was helpless, God, my Heavenly Father, came and chose me and picked me and saved me. 
And so now I can love somebody before he or she deserves it. What does it mean to live in our story with our kids and our grandkids? It means we begin to say, I know they're wandering, but they're not farther gone than I was when God came for me. And so I'm going to hold out hope for them. I'm not going to write off my kids or my grandkids. I'm not going to write off my brother or my sister and say God could never. They're nobody's farther gone than I was. When God stepped down and gave His Son for me. This is a call for us to begin to parent from a different story. Not using threats and manipulation, but the story of God that says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, He's now called us to walk with Him. But He already died for us. Instead of manipulating each other and saying, here's how we can get what we want out of our homes. Instead, the story of our homes is the God of the universe loves and gives Himself for unworthy people, and so we can too. Not I'm the perfect one and you should bow to me. Our our lives should be dominated by the story of the Gospel. Seen all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, where Israel is supposed to be reminded regularly, God saved you first, Israel. God saved you first. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4, chapters that are about slander and persecution, about being threatened and suffering, Peter reminds God's people over and over, in your suffering... The story that should dominate your life is the gospel. That Jesus suffered and died for you. In some ways, Paul doesn't even explain what exactly he means. He just says it over and over and over because what he wants is God's people to be so saturated with the gospel that we can handle slander and deceit and suffering because the story of the gospel is our story. And it, puts, and it begins to color and dominate every other story in our lives. In the same way that Peter does that with suffering and slander, God, through Moses, is calling here in this passage to say, what is the story that should dominate your homes? It's we were slaves of Satan, but the Lord brought us out with His mighty hand. He brought us out to bring us in and give us His good promises. That should be the story that dominates our homes. So we can relate to our husbands and wives, parents, siblings. So that maybe you're caring for an aging parent and the dementia is setting in and the words are cruel and you go, how do I do this? This story begins to say, when, when this story dominates our hearts, then we can begin to say, I'm going to love the unlovely first. When our brothers and sisters turn against us and hurt us deeply, we can say that this story is my story. So this passage calls you and I in our homes to live from our relationship with God paying more attention to our own hearts, living without forgetting God, and getting our story straight. But if you're like me, this passage exposes us. It exposes the truth that we have not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It exposes that in our families, 
We have loved ourselves and our comfort and our success and our control more than we've loved God. It exposes that we forget God in our daily life when things go well and we rage against Him when they go badly. It exposes the stories that we tell to ourselves and to our loved ones. We tell each other to live this way so that God will love us because it's the right thing to do or because we're better than other people. Where is the good news in this passage for those that this passage exposes? The good news in this passage is that Jesus is the only one who could truly say that he loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he died in your place to take the punishment that you deserve. Jesus never forgot the Lord, even from the cross, so that he could take take from you your sin and give you his perfection. Jesus, the true Israel, came up out of Egypt, was careful to obey all the law of God, died as you should have died, and was raised to life so that he could say to you, here is your righteousness. That is yours if you are in Christ today. Live in your family in that record in power. Don't go somewhere else for power. Go there. Maybe to, but maybe today you're here and you go, I am not in Christ and I don't know where to start. You say, Joe, could that be true of me? Could that be mine? So that I could have the power to live in my home with sinful, hurtful people in a different way. You say, how, Joe, how can I be in Christ in that way? The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned against God. The, the Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve rebelled against God's one rule, saying we will not live your way. And all of us have agreed with that and lived with that and said, God, we want our own kingdom. The Bible calls that sin and says the wages of sin is death, physical death in this life and eternal death in hell forever. That's the bad news of the Bible. It exposes our need to be saved. But, and Jesus, the God-man, came and lived the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, so that everybody who turns away from sin That's changing our mind and saying, God, I don't want to be a rebel anymore. And I will trade with Jesus. I will believe you that Jesus is God's son and that his life and death were for me. Accepting his forgiveness and following him as Savior and Lord. That is how it becomes ours. If you have questions about that, wanting to be clear, whether you've attended here for 70 years or you're brand new, Let today be the day that you trade with Jesus so that you can have a power that you've never had before. So this passage calls us to live from our relationship with God. I want you to imagine what what changes in your home when you're not negotiating with each other anymore. I do this for you if you do this for me. I do this for you you because I want to get this from you. We negotiate with our kids. We negotiate with our spouse. Imagine what changes if you're not negotiating anymore. The, the thing that you love most is not getting your way. Instead, it's, I want God's way. I'm dominated by His story. I love Him more than anything. And out of that story, I can love you even though you don't deserve it. And you may not return it. Sounds like a different kind of home. Imagine if you're in a home with sinners. But you know in your heart of hearts that you're not alone because the God of the universe gave himself for you, promises to walk with you, and says, live out my story in your home. Imagine 
in your home, not parenting, loving your brother and sister, caring for an aging parent, and going, you know what? I am not alone in this. Imagine, imagine not being caught up in our culture's story about what it means to be married, to parent, to relate to brothers and sisters. Imagine if you're free from what everybody else says about you and your story, and instead you get your story from the fact that when I was a slave to sin, God saved me. And now he has set me here and has promised to do good to me here. That's a different kind of parenting story. That's a different kind of grandparenting story. That's a different kind of story going to a family reunion or sitting at the dinner table. Imagine imagine the kind of power that comes from a a white-hot love for God. It says, God, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Walk with me here, God. Sounds like a different kind of home. Let's pray. God, I want to love you more than anything. I know what it's like to love so many other things, mostly myself. God, I pray that in the gospel story, you would set us free from that so that in our homes, we can love each other out of our love for God and the love we have from God. In Jesus' name, amen.